Hello friends and welcome to Beauty the Interviews, a podcast production of The Beautiful Project, a grassroots storytelling initiative that invites women to belong in the world with substance and with strength. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for this podcast and the founder of The Beautiful Project. Every once in a while I interact with people in the world and I instantly know that I am supposed to make space for their stories. Today's interview with Nicole is one of those times. Now, that can be a little bit weird at first, uh, meeting a total stranger and knowing for sure that they have something to tell you, but over time you develop an ability to sort of uh, approach that gently with them, which is what I did with Nicole. Over the past few months, we have spent hours together talking about making space for our big personalities and our big ideas and our big voices in the world. She is such a gift to me, and I know that her story will be a gift to you. Today, she'll share her insights on what it was like to grow up in a big body with a big personality. She'll talk about how her brokenness has really created these cracks in her, which are the exact places where the light gets in. And light, that is exactly what Nicole is. She shines a light in her corner of the world. And it's just such a privilege to be a part of it. So without further ado, let's drop in and hear from Nicole. So this is my friend Nicole. And um, Nicole and I met... uh, couple of months ago however prior to that I was social media stalking her because we were (laughs) friends of it's true it happened because we were friends of friends and uh, I've said this before in the interviews but there are some people who um, people will ask me how I recruit people to tell their stories and there's no algorithm there's no there's nothing formal there's just this thing that moves in me in response to another human, and I go, oh, they have a, their body has a story to tell, and I felt, and in my social media stalking, <laughs> this is like literally before <laughs> I knew who you were, I was like, I want that girl, I want that story, <laughs> um, and then I got to meet you, and that confirmed for me, um, well, first of all, it confirmed the instinct that you had a story to tell, mm-hmm. uh, but more than that, uh, you know, uh, my role with you is not to just extract uh, your story from you. I've we've gotten to spend lots of time together in the last couple of months. That we have um, just uh, loving on each other, and it's been mm-hmm. pretty awesome for me. So I'm excited to finally be here, you know, across from each other at the table, giving you an opportunity to tell the thing that that kind of reached out to me many months ago. So thank you for saying yes. Absolutely, awesome. I'm excited to be here. Good. So we'll start like we always start. Tell me about the first time that you realized that your body was different from other bodies. I would have to say when I was little, like little, little, probably between the ages of five and seven, Mm -hmm. I used to dance Mm -hmm. at a dance conservatory. And we're talking jazz, tap, ballet, gymnastics, like the whole shlue. The shlue of dancing. (laughs) It was was a lot, lot, a lot of stuff. Which I think is what taught me how to be busy, Mm. even at a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, But my body just wasn't the same as other girls. Mm -hmm. Like, I I would say probably four to five, I was still kind of normal-ish, average. Mm -hmm. But then, like, I started 
liking food and sneaking cookies and, you know, things like that. <laughs> Even though I was active, yeah, I wasn't the go-getter out of the group in, in being active, so. So do you attribute, a, a like, the shift in your body size and type when you were, it sounds like six, seven? Mm-hmm. Do you attribute that to too much food, or do you think there was just some shift metabolically for you, or a combination? I think it's just the genetics right. of, of who I am. Um, I look at all of the women in my family, and on my mom's side of the family, we come from an Italian heritage, and so we are very curvy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and of course, I have bigger curves than most, but, you know, it's one of those things where... I really truly think that it's just the way that my body was created and built. Mm-hmm. It's just who I have been my whole life. You know, I say this from time to time on these um, interviews, but we uh, culturally we are very comfortable with the narrative that says that there's a genetic influence, a dominant genetic influence in a very thin body type. Mm-hmm. We are completely resistant to the idea that the opposite is equally as true, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think habits mm-hmm. that are exampled to a child can mm-hmm. definitely mold and shape who they are and their relationship with food and, you know, the things that they tell their body even. I remember several days in the mirror with my mom and she was always doing something to manipulate her look mm-hmm. to feel better about herself. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just interesting the way that those things can play, you yeah. know, down the road. It's it's like it's a trickle or a ripple effect, yeah, you know. Totally. In that <clears throat> as women, we the first example we see is the way that our mother mm-hmm. looks at herself, treats herself, mm-hmm. whether or not she loves herself. Mm-hmm. And moms don't even realize the example that they are or the narrative that they're beginning even at a very young age. Right. Um, just by having their daughters and their sons even mm-hmm. watch them. Right, because what they... So I this somebody called me out on this when I first started this project because I had such an emphasis on women. And they were talking about um, training their sons to love women, <coughs> um, about how they needed... How their influence on their sons was, was equally as important because then their sons would become men who would expect a certain ideal from women mm-hmm. if they didn't teach them differently. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a lot of influence, a lot of power. It's a really redeeming thing about who we are as human beings, actually. Mm-hmm. It means that we get to write the story, right? Absolutely. But we have to be mindful about what we're writing. Right. And I don't even think some women realize the things that they're carrying with them. Mm-hmm. It's, like, stitched on everything that they do, everywhere that they go, you know. And a lot of times it's written on... You know, you wear your emotions on your sleeve and it's written all over your face, but yeah, it's like you don't even realize it. Yeah, that's true. And there's an energy that walks in the room with you, too. Oh, always, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you were, so you were in dance and you were <coughs> six, seven, mm-hmm. and you went, oh, I'm bigger than everybody else. Yeah. So, what did, what, so tell me about what you did with that or didn't do with that or it just was a mm-hmm. fact at that point? Well, I would say along with my stature, if you will. Um, I've always come with a bigger heart and a bigger personality than most. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew what to do with it when I was young. 
mm-hmm. because I always wanted to be the center of attention. And there was this, like, I don't know, this weird sunshiny, beamy thing that happened <laughs> with me. And everybody was like, holy heck, she is a ball of fire. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what to do with her. Mm-hmm. So I immediately, like, after being reprimanded several times in classroom environments or even at home with my siblings, you know, um, I learned to almost dim that a little Mm -hmm. bit. And I'm definitely one today that I look at people and I say, don't let anybody dull your shine Mm -hmm. because you're not, you're not created for that, you know, but I think there's a certain time and place for the power of your personality (laughs) and how you use it and learning what that is and how to introduce it and Mm -hmm. or pull it back at the right times, you know? Um, What would the reprimanding look like for your bigness, your bigness? um, I would be isolated from groups of people. Um, I would... You know, the, the saying, nobody puts baby in a corner. Well, yeah. this baby was in a corner often, <laughs> just because my mom didn't know how to deal with me. Um, and even on into high school, you know, I would be sent to my room and or excluded from groups of people because I had an opinion and they didn't necessarily share the same one I did. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there are two... There are two... Specific memories from my school days mm-hmm. that I remember, and it was different classmates calling out my size and or my habits or things like that. So when I was in fifth grade, I'll never forget this, I had two girls that would sit next to me at lunch, and because I came from the circumstances that I did financially that were much different than theirs, like we were always the family with the least in the most affluent areas oh yeah so and because there were five of us kids like we didn't get to take our lunch all the time we had to buy school lunch because it was cheaper mm-hmm. per child for my mother to do it that way than it was for her to buy all of the stuff for, for us to take for lunches but I remember they approached me and they said something about what I was eating <laughs> And then at the tender age of, I don't know, what, 10? 10. Mm-hmm. 10 in fifth grade? They tried to coach me on what I should bring in my lunch. <laughs> so I went home and tried to adhere to these boxes that they gave me, basically, of you should have this in your lunch. And you Do you remember what it. they told you, like, specifically? I remember what I brought. It was yeah. a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some tortilla chips <laughs> because we didn't have vegetables and stuff like that to throw in our lunch. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, that's so important. Access to food is such a big deal. Okay. Yes. Keep talking. Sorry. So I remember bringing it and they just kind of looked at me and they were like, well, that's not exactly what we meant, but go ahead and enjoy your lunch. And this is in fifth grade. And I mean, like I would look at their lunches and they would always have like cute little notes from their mom and their dad, you know, and they would have the little like individualized pack of baby carrots and ranch or whatever it was at the time that was cool to have in your lunch. And I would get French bread pizza and applesauce, you know, (laughs) like for what I was able to buy. And then like, I remember on into high school, there were times where punishments would look like not getting the allowed money for the week Mm. that I was supposed to eat lunch with. 
So I had certain friends come alongside me, you know what I mean, like in my school career, and they would buy my lunches for me. And that looked like junk too, because it was a lot cheaper to buy a cup of noodle soup, you know, like, and have the cafeteria heated up than it was to pay for my full lunch anywhere else. So it was interesting. It shaped... Shaped my relationship with food, I think. I was just going to say, your the, um, your relationship with food was heavily influenced by, um, well, by some of the socioeconomic factors that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And also, it sounds like there was some... Um, so some people tell food restriction stories on the basis of, my mom was trying to make me thinner, mm-hmm. right? But yours, it sounds like access to food was part of the attempt to control other behavior even. Yes, yeah, I would say so. And not necessarily, like, I come from a very broken situation, broken background, so it was more so dad, you know what I mean, that would, Mm. there were times where I wouldn't necessarily have the lunch money, or if mom gave me lunch money at the beginning of the week, then he didn't feel it was his responsibility. And it was just this struggle, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, like between the two of them and their communication, mm-hmm. that a lot of things got lost in the middle of that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it was at the expense of me and, and my siblings, unfortunately. Um, I don't think parents that are in that situation, you know, that choose to to break the commitment that they made to each other, I don't think they realize the power that their shifts in power toward each other have, like, such a huge impact children mm-hmm. and so it made for a very chaotic environment you know mm-hmm. often in in our upbringing but it also there were things like that that would go by the wayside and I don't even think they realized how damaging that was back then mm-hmm. you know so how old were you when they divorced well <laughs> it's kind of complicated I was it was the second day of seventh grade when their divorce was final. However, uh-huh. all of, I mean, some of my first memories of my parents were them having conflict with each other, like in pretty traumatizing ways. Um, but it started like the on again, off again, like we can't be together, but we're going to try for the sake of the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was at nine and a half, right after my mom had my youngest so fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So you had three years of the in-between place of my family. Well, like you said, if from the beginning, your memories are pretty full of chaos and conflict. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But then the acknowledgement sort of, of this isn't going to work. It took three years for the thing to really come apart. Well, yeah. I, truth be told, like in talking to my both my parents, you know, They both have their opinions about how challenging it was to co-parent with the other, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, My mom, she was bipolar and undiagnosed for a long time Mm -hmm. um, in my childhood. And that definitely had a huge part, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're living with somebody that's ill and you don't realize that the thing that they have you can't even see. It's not like an ailment. It's not like... You know, you have this appendage on your body that's has a wound. You know, it's right. it's a wound within your soul and its inner workings. And so, um, it was a challenge that way. Um, but 
after she left for a while, she came back because she was taken completely out of the equation because she was choosing to self-medicate with narcotics. Mm. And so that it was hard, you know, on, on my dad. And I can understand where he comes from in the conversations we've had about co-parenting and how challenging it was because there were moments where I didn't know what I was walking into. And if I can, if I can recognize that as a child that I I knew that my, that the environment that I was walking into daily was not a stable one. I can only imagine what it was like to create or procreate, you know, children with somebody that you never knew, you know? So but I also like can see it from my mom's side of things and my dad was always a tough not sell but he he had a hard time wrapping his mind around mental illness mm-hmm. because they both come from a generation where it was almost like there was a white picket fence syndrome mm-hmm. you know like on the outside everything looks fantastic right. and I very much so in modern days see social media and the way that people kind of plaster this perfect or their definition of perfection right you know on right. on your social media feeds yeah. and you never know you know like look at what just happened with Kate Spade or what right. just happened with yeah. um the chef what is his name yeah uh Dave um Anthony uh Bourdain, Bourdain. sorry that's <laughs> yeah, okay I've struggled Total too. lots of words there um but you just you never know it's like this this struggle that you just don't Mm -hmm. it's hard to wrap your mind around sure if you don't struggle with it yourself you know but there were band-aids you know on my dad's side of things as well because where my mom self-medicated with narcotics he grew up in an environment where alcohol was was a thing you know like I look at things like just certain holidays with family and how you know it was centered around this huge meal and then the wine that was paired with it Mm -hmm. or um even just my great-grandfather he was so funny he's comes from a russian heritage and so it didn't matter what we were eating (laughs) there was some alcohol pairing and we would always cheers with the word nastrovia which means to good health and happiness in russian Mm -hmm. so it you know there's been a lot of my culture and upbringing uh, centered around habits that are used to band-aid a lot of what's happening within I think sense yes it makes perfect sense I think uh, I think I don't um I think our culture uh influences all of us differently in that but we seem to be landing most of us at least in this country Mm -hmm. seem to be landing in a similar spot which is we each have a, um, a series of things that we've chosen to help numb us mm-hmm. or move us away from the present, you know. And some people's are obvious, mm-hmm. and some people's are less obvious, to your point about Kate Spade and, and right. you know, um, because we don't always see it. But I have yet to sit with a person who goes, I don't numb at all. I am a very present human being. of the time. Now, what your thing is, is largely dependent on your family of origin, Mm -hmm. you know, and how you learned from those, from those situations. Largely, sometimes you hear stories, you know, or I know lots of them 
where there's a huge deviation from your family of origin, you know, folks who grew up in, like, the white picket fence family, mm-hmm. and then they end up on the streets with a meth problem, you know, you're like, well, did you look, no, they didn't, you know, so, but I think that the allure or the enticement to not feel the things mm-hmm. that we're feeling is a part of the human condition, mm-hmm. and the thing we select to, uh, the thing that we select to be, you know, to really be able to check out, that's, it can be booze and narcotics and food and mm-hmm. all or sorts. it can be busyness. Busyness. I myself have just come out of a series of years of keeping myself so busy just so I couldn't feel. Mm-hmm. Because I've experienced a lot of loss, um, including but not limited to losing my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, her narcotics, you know, she she did have an issue with meth mm-hmm. um, throughout my childhood mm-hmm. and. It's not the most glamorous thing by any means, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely something that she struggled with. And, you know, there are many people in this world that will take those kind of circumstances and they will either follow suit in behavior that they're exampled, or they will take that and use it as a fuel to overcome and almost do the exact polar opposite of Mm -hmm. what they were exampled. And so there's an element of me and myself where I grew up striving to be different than what I was exampled. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's some self-care in there that... It's almost like you you don't know how to do that because it wasn't something necessarily exampled to you. And you're also keeping yourself so busy and or whatever your numbing yep. is um, that you lose a piece of yourself throughout that process. And it's almost like you have to go back and get her, mm-hmm. you know, and when you realize that that's what's happening. Where do you think you started to lose that part? That part of me? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes one of your um, one of your patterns of telling stories is it's really normal, uh, but you you will start to you don't really uh, you dissociate from it, so you tell it as she they uh, sure. right, right, and so I speak about myself in the third person. <laughs> it's totally fine. Sometimes I even I even say Sarah says, so yeah. don't worry about it, right? Like I use my name, which is particularly creepy. But in that particular circumstance, just because I have the advantage of sitting across from you and the audience doesn't, I, I can tell that you're talking about you're talking about your mom, but you're talking about you about mm-hmm. losing parts of you along the way, like leaving them somewhere, mm-hmm. and then just adding layers of right. busy and things and layers between you and her. Mm-hmm. So tell me where you think you started to lose her. Her being me, you. Okay, yes. I just wanted to clarify that. I'm just going to bring you back to you. Right, okay. right. Um, it's one that I have to pause for just a second and think. You can take as much time as you need. I don't think that it was all at once. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that there were pieces chiseled off from time to time, and... I'll never forget when I moved here nine years ago. Mm-hmm. I moved in with my aunt and uncle, and I was very blessed by them in having a year just free of many challenges that I had had in my young adulthood. 
one of them including, but not limited to, free rent for the year so that I could pay off as much debt as they could. And mm -hmm. I was able to accomplish quite a big feat in a very short amount of time because of their love and kindness, mm -hmm. you know, toward my situation. But I remember my uncle looking at me and saying something to the effect of, where is the joyful little girl that I once knew? Mm. And at that moment, I had to start figuring out where all of those pieces were. Mm. Because when somebody can look at you, and there's a difference, a, a distinct difference between happiness uh -huh. and joy. Uh -huh. And when somebody can look at you and say, you used to be shiny, mm. <laughs> and now you're very dull mm. and weathered mm -hmm. and broken in some facets. That's what I got from the, where where is the joyful little girl that I once knew? Mm -hmm. And it was almost like, she was somewhere completely different. And sometimes I still don't know where she is, I'll be honest with you. And yeah. I think part of that is just life experience and how it molds you, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I remember things in my early childhood, like I just mentioned, you know. But I also remember heartbreaks along the way with just my family dynamic. And then friends, friendships even, you know, because I was one of those that I was the table hopper in high school mm -hmm. and I never really had that one core group or even the one or two people, you know, that you always have in your corner outside of the friend that I just, you know, right. talked okay. about. But even then, like, if you look at coming up through grade school and middle school, mm -hmm there was never really that one friend that you just kind of harbored to, you know, like there's, there were seasonal, seasonal people for me. So like in elementary school, I had a best friend until she moved away to New York. Uh -huh. And then in middle school, I had two, probably two girls that I hung out with on a consistent basis uh -huh. and their houses would be kind of a safe place for me growing uh -huh. up. And then in high school, it shifted as well. And not once, but twice because I went to, one high school for two years and then another high school for two years. But I remember the latter two years, there <laughs> there was a student council situation where we were planning a dance or something like that. And we were in a classroom, and this is kind of going off the subject for just a second, but this is another body. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah. when did I re realize my body was different than others? There was a girl that looked at me and she goes, see, you need to be like Nicole. You need to have the confidence that she has because she just doesn't care how how large she is. Uh, and I looked at her and I was just like, um, I don't know that that's completely accurate. <laughs> but at the same heart, but at the same time, like I have a big heart and I have a big personality, and it has to fit somewhere. <laughs> so we're just gonna go with that. Yeah, that works. <laughs> Get on with your bad self. And I turned around and walked away. Because what do you say? You know, yeah. like, there was, it was almost like this backhanded compliment. compliment. You know, like, I see you, yeah. and I see that you're confident, and I see that at the end of the day, you really, like, have no qualms about who sees you yes. in your entirety, you know, but then it was something about my size. And it, it's almost like we attribute somebody's size as their worth and or... Almost. We well, I mean, sure, we do. <laughs> we for sure link we size do. and worth. 
yeah. we do. Um, Which is, uh, and and the and the dominant narrative is um, that thin bodies have value and right. <clears throat> and that fatter bodies have to make up for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to be like confident or big hearted or funny or. I just heard this story. Somebody shared the story with me the other day. She was at a birthday party. And this woman said, it's a good thing you're so funny. Mm. And this is a, these are grown-ass women. Mm. <laughs> it's a good thing you're so funny. And um, <laughs> she goes, this is just who this person is. This is how she is. She goes, why? Because my fat body is so repulsive that I had to find a way to be palatable to you. And I was like, boom. You know? Mic drop. Yeah, mic drop. <laughs> and she's out. Yeah. Um, and it is that whole notion of, <clears throat> and I, you know, I wrote the, I wrote a blog about Pretty Good for a Fat Girl. Right. And <clears throat> I've had lots of people give me feedback about that. And they were like, well, what if she was just complimenting you? I appreciate that. And I love compliments mm-hmm. and I have trained myself how to take them in. I know the difference between a period at the end of a sentence and a comma, mm-hmm. or an ellipsis, a dot, 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 right? Or a semicolon. Or Yes, <laughs> very good. Or a semicolon, right. I know the difference verbally. And in situations like that, it's this, um, uh, the frustration being, why can't I just, why can't my confidence just stand on its own, not as something that was developed as resilience to the size of my body, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's really what it's about. Right. It's not that you have a problem people complimenting you about being confident. Mm-hmm. It's that the presumption that I had to do it yes. in order to make up for something. Mm-hmm. What if they both just exist on their own? Right. Yeah. And it, growing up, it was hard to allow those two things to exist on their own because mm-hmm. there were always there were always things, you know, like... There were family members of mine, my mom, my dad, my grandmother, all within, I don't know, a few years of each other. They looked at me and they would say things like, you're so, you're so pretty, Nicole, but you would be so much prettier if, Mm -hmm. and it always was centered around my weight, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And what they didn't realize is that my weight was a way for me to hold people at arm's length. And it was one of the only things that I had control over Mm. growing up. That's because, so important there. Right, what you just right. said right there is huge. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was one of the only things that I had control over. You know, my circumstances were not my own to, to shape and shift and mold. Um, and branching back to where I've lost her along mm-hmm. the way, you know, I'm in an industry. I've chosen an industry. I'm in the beauty industry. Thank you. Um I'm a salon owner here in the Quad Cities, and I have chosen an industry where giving of yourself is a culture in and of itself, and oftentimes in large ways that discount your self-care and your self-worth if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Because you're giving, 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 mm-hmm. and they're taking, 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 and they deserve to come in and treat themselves. They mm-hmm. deserve to come in and have that hour to three hour chunk of time where it's all about them but a lot of times like they don't call it therapy <laughs> for no reason they don't call me a therapist for nothing um they're they're leaving a lot of their own daily struggle in my chair and I have to figure out a way to compartmentalize that and mm-hmm. prepare this safe space for the next person mm-hmm. and so 
it's really easy to lose yourself, especially if you're an empath like I am, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the stories of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I had a conversation about that just recently because of mm-hmm. just this project and how it yep. affects you because a lot of emotional ties and even realizations, you know, have come from... There's women that have sit and sat in the chair that I'm sitting in now and have said things to themselves that they've never before. verbalized yep. before, you yep. know? So it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's, a, it's an inter- inter- interesting question. I can't get the words up um, that you just asked me. And I, I think I still need to sit with that for a little while and figure out. I, I can definitely pinpoint, it's almost like painting by numbers, you mm-hmm. know, or like connecting the dots. But I might have to reflect on it a little bit more to yeah. know all of the places. Well, it's almost like creating... A roadmap. Yeah. Or like Hansel and Gretel with the breadcrumbs along the way. Well, I wonder if, you know, if you've shared a lot about what, what, about the work you're doing on yourself right now. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if that paradigm might be helpful, Mm -hmm. putting all the pieces into one place again. I think we all, I think we long to be whole. Like, um, uh, you know, um, in the way though that, have you ever seen, there's this, there's this meme, well, it's not a meme, there's an actual quote about, I think it's a roomy quote, mm-hmm. that says, the cracks are where the light gets in, mm-hmm. right? It's one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely. And then there's this practice, this Japanese practice of taking a vase and breaking it. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I was totally going to go there. You're reading my mind. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so I wonder, if, I wonder if this idea of the pieces that you've left of yourself along mm-hmm. the way, that's just kind of the imagery that came to me. So about finding those... Mm-hmm. They aren't going to go back together as one seamless piece, mm-hmm. right? Because that's not how any of this works. Mm-hmm. You wanted to talk about that. What do you want to say about that? Well, I don't know about you, but my artistic brain mm-hmm. absolutely finds joy and just beauty in a mosaic, mm-hmm. which is a whole bunch of broken glass pieced yeah. back together in a repurposed way. But there is the Japanese cultural... I don't... It has a name, the thing. Do you know what it's called? I'm gonna, I don't. I'm going to Google it. You keep talking. Okay. okay. Um, basically, in the Japanese culture, if something is broken, they don't discard it and throw it away. They fix it, and then they encase it in gold. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, number one, stronger than it was before, but number two, typically, not typically, it does become more beautiful than it was to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely a picture that has been brought to my mind often um somebody shared it with me not long ago and even in my own you know therapy mm-hmm. so to speak I my therapist has brought it up as well you know really yeah um it was in one of our first sessions together and I literally like my jaw just hit the floor because I again was about to say something about that because I don't, I've had to shift my perspective on my journey and what's brought me to today mm-hmm. and not look at it as so much of the negative things that have molded my experiences, but look at it as fragmented parts that are being placed back together mm-hmm. in a unique way that I wouldn't be able to have 
the voice that I did or speak to the experiences that I have had I not experienced those things. And I think that all of those things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, even forming relationships and or gravitating toward certain things like lead her, you know, that I did. Yeah. I am in a place where I want to do good, you Mm -hmm. know, and not just for everybody else, but for myself as well. And so learning to pour into myself so that I can then pour it out into others instead of being this broken pitcher that's leaking on the side. Right. (laughs) You know, like it's really hard to pour out if you aren't being poured into. And if you're leaking and you can't sit with what you're being poured, it's, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So that's good stuff. It's called Kintsugi, I don't think I'm saying that right, but it is an actual process by which they repair broken pottery with lacquer, dusted, or mixed with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. Mm-hmm. Um, in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know. Um, I want to know about what you think about your body today, and and just sort of where you're at in relationship to that with your body and food and movement. And I mean, I'm assuming you have a most women, mm-hmm. most of us have us. We have lots of stories of attempts to fix ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So, right. I'm assuming there are stories of restriction and diets and no. Yes and no. That's awesome. That actually Only... makes me pretty happy. <laughs> I'm like, yay, no diet. <laughs> Only because, as I said to you a few minutes ago, my weight has been a way to hold people at arm's length because it's one of the only things that I can control. Oh, sure. And so I've allowed myself to sit with it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in a conversation that we just had recently, one of the things that I hear often in the narrative that Mm -hmm. we talk about so often is a negative adjective attached to fat. Yeah. Fat bitch, fat, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you want to say. Um, about a person and I think there's we have we have an opportunity to allow fat to be something that we are Mm -hmm. without it defining us but to also have it be something that we have Mm -hmm. and something that we possess the Mm -hmm. same way that I possess any other attribute that you could attach to me Mm -hmm. whether it be my intelligence or you know like my um artistry or whatever whatever it may be that I possess and so fat is something that I have mm-hmm. quite a bit of you know mm-hmm. um but I've learned to embrace it and I sit across from you today dressed according to who I am and and the image that I have you know in my brain but also one that my industry calls for mm-hmm. um And I look at, you know, there was a saying that my grandparents said to me often about my parents and their circumstances, and it was that they did the best they could with what they had. Mm -hmm. And I am a firm believer that people do the best they can with what they have. I always have presented myself in a way in doing the best I can with what I have. So I may have bigger curves than most, Mm -hmm. but I've learned to dress them in a way that is flattering to my body shape Mm -hmm. um, and that makes me feel confident walking out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) There was, I don't know if it was on your blog or somewhere else, but 
I think it was I think it was the beautiful project. You said something about the amount of black clothing that a woman has in her yes, closet. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was on Instagram. I yeah. I was like, we can wear fuchsia, okay? Right, right. It's, I'm not in mourning. <laughs> but again, my industry calls for a lot of black clothing, so I've always done something to have a pop of color, whether it be my hair and or an accessory or whatever it may be. Um, but again, things that I have, not necessarily things that I am. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not my black clothing. And there's a lot of times, like, where people will see me in a photo in color. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're wearing color. <laughs> well, I do wear color from time to time. But when I'm behind the chair, it doesn't make sense to wear colorful clothing that's sure. going to get stained. Right. You know, your fa- that thing about um, fat is something that I have and that's something that I am. Um, so in my in my initial, like most swings of a pendulum, my initial like I'm taking my life back moment mm-hmm. nine months ago, I was like, well, fuck you. You don't get to keep the word fat to the world, right? And I was right. like, I'm going to use it to describe myself because it's because precisely what you're talking about. It is not reflective of, the, of my character, mm-hmm. right? And um, and I've been pretty adamant about that because I'd like us to take the word back. And mm-hmm. and that's a really common thing, actually, in any marginalized group, that they take yeah. the word that's been used to hurt them and go, oh, you think that hurts, right? Mm-hmm. So that's part of a healing process, I think. Of course. However, when you, you and I talked about this last week, about this idea. And so the shift that I've made in my language, just since we talked, because I, I also hear what you're saying mm-hmm. because it's not all I am. So I was thinking about it, and I was like, I want it to be able to be used as a descriptor mm-hmm. of physical characteristics. Like, I have curly hair. Mm-hmm. I have blue eyes, mm-hmm. right? And then I was like, well, how can I get at it? So now, I'm, so now I've moved a little bit, and I'll say fat-bodied, right? right. Because mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Like, it's not... Because it's still taking the word back. I'm not going to... I. It's so critical to me that I don't um, dance around the word anymore, mm-hmm. you know, because then it's like it gives the power to other people to use it to hurt me. I, I don't know how else to explain it other than that. But mm-hmm. I agree with you. I am more I am more than my body. Mm-hmm. I'm more than my hair. I'm more than my black clothes. I, Absolutely. You know, I'm all the parts mm-hmm. together, and it makes up something other than just I am fat. So right. preach, sister. You are beautiful yes. as well. So let's talk about that. Let's yes. let's talk about the, <clears throat> the fact you shared with me that you can share with the world now. Mm-hmm. Um, Go, my friend. I had a season of my life where I sold organizational products known mm-hmm. as 31. Organizational um, <laughs> products. I love it. And to tie into clothing myself, there is a specific Bible verse that they, Proverbs 31, you mm-hmm. know, and it talks about her being clothed in strength and dignity and mm-hmm. laughing without fear of the future and things of that nature, which has been a huge inspiration in my life. But they have a facet of their business um, called 31 Gives, and it's where they come alongside underprivileged and or women's organizations that are reaching out to women that could be hurting and or just need help in some facet. Um, things like Dress for Success, and mm-hmm. um, I think they even work with Girl Scouts, you know, mm-hmm. just to help shift and mold them. But they came out with some really sobering statistics that rocked me to my core back like when it first started and one of them is that only two percent of women find themselves beautiful or would describe themselves two percent as beautiful two percent two percent 
That leaves 98% of women believing that the descriptor beautiful does not belong to them. Then there's something wrong with the criteria by which we judge that word because just from like a purely scientific statistical space, Mm -hmm. that's not possible. I mean, that's not, it's not possible, but that's true. 2% is crazy talk, Mm -hmm. man. But I think that it definitely branches back to the things that we talked about in viewing ourselves through the lens of our mothers mm. and or women in our lives because grandmothers raise children too. Yep. Um, <clears throat> well, and our grandmothers often raised our mothers. And so of it's course. this lineage. Right. Of, I talk about that. We have a lineage of shrinking stories mm-hmm. passed Absolutely. on to us. Um, but I think that it starts at a young, tender age as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't hear things like, you're beautiful mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. how are you going to be able to describe yourself by that? Right. Uh, one, another statistic that I shared with you from this group of statistics is that a girl's self-esteem peaks at age nine. Mm-hmm. Nine. Right. What are we doing in the formative years of a child's life? It doesn't just have to be a woman, mm-hmm. but... What are we doing in those formative years to build them up? Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember one of my favorite movies is The Help. Mm. And when Abilene, you know, approaches he was her, kind. he was kind, he was yeah. smart, he, he was, was important, important. you yeah. know? And so, so, so important that we are connected to each other, mm-hmm. especially in a culture where the disconnection happens often. I think it's because we. Yes, I agree. And I think that so much of it comes from, we have a really interesting, humans have a really interesting like dichotomy of things that exist. We desperately want to be seen and known and loved, and we're terrified of being seen and known and loved. Right. And so anything we can use to keep some distance there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, And you talked about one of the ways that you've navigated the world is to use your body as a way of like, I want you to see me, like, and, and you even talked about having a curated image about... <clears throat> This is how I want the world to perceive me, you know? I think we all have that. Yes, we do. Oh, yeah. No, I'm saying we do. Mm-hmm. I think we we have this dichotomy that exists in us, mm-hmm. and it's terrifying and exhilarating, and um, and we'll, grab, we'll latch on to anything we can find to keep just a little bit of distance there. Mm-hmm. But the And we also have these peak moments uh, of humanity where we sit across the mm-hmm. table from somebody... And all of the things that we fear about being seen and known and loved seem to disappear for just an instant. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're meant to live in that space all the time. Maybe we're not. Maybe the tension of the rest of our mm-hmm. lives mm-hmm. is actually, um, it's the thing that lends us to be so, for those moments of connection to be so extraordinary, mm-hmm. I guess. Because mm-hmm. we only know it because we don't have it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is sad to me, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. We only know it because we don't have it all the time. Yeah, no, it, I, yeah, I... I think that's sad too. I do, because I, I I am a I am a constant craver of connection. Yeah. Ask the people around me. Yes. I mean, I to the degree that I think that it can be annoying for the people who are intimately involved in my life because they're like, back off of me, <laughs> stop seeing me all the time. Can I just not? In fact, yeah. my wife has said to me, "Can I not be the best version of myself every second of the day?" I'm like, <laughs> I don't know who you married. <laughs> no. Well, there's even times like where I will approach just our situation or our experiences yeah. together, and you're like, "You feel a little weird to me today," and I'm like, "Stop! Can you just me. not see me for a minute, please?" It's like a I don't, for a split second. That's fair. That's 
fair. You know what? I love you. I love that you said that because I hear it all the time. If I could turn it off, honestly, there are times where I seriously... But I was given it for a reason, so I don't well, want to turn right. it off. It's and fine. And is not a bad thing to have. Right. It's just pretty intense sometimes to live yeah. with me. So, um, <laughs> is there anything that we didn't say that you want to say today to the people listening about you, about bodies, about beauty, about belonging, mm-hmm. about any of it? Well, I remember a conversation that you and I had. Um, I think it was the first time we sat down for coffee, and I had just gotten back from being back home and mm-hmm. you started our conversation with you feel a little weird today what's going on and mm-hmm. I remember telling you just about some of the things that I experienced in my recent trip home but then our conversation took this turn and this shift because you were sharing your experience mm-hmm. with um, some of the relationships that you've had in your lifetime and then also some things that you had just recently experienced and you were talking about the question that I don't know that I completely answered earlier about certain diets and or things that we've done to manipulate our bodies. Um, That's not to say that there aren't times that I've tried to eat healthier Mm -hmm. and or there was a season of my life right before my mom passed away that I was in the gym all the time because Mm -hmm. I had this thing for Zumba that made me really happy and that was one of my sources of joy. And so I would go and I would do. And of course there were physical, you know, repercussions or, you know, What's the word I'm looking for? It, it showed on the outside, I guess. Yes. The, some of the stuff that was happening on the inside. Um, and one of the things that I shared with you is there's this shift that happened in my life centered around something that I was doing for the industry that I'm in. And I was in St. Louis doing hair for a bunch of photo shoots. And, of course, a lot of those photo shoots are centered around beauty because... Mm-hmm. As the a beauty culture, industry, yeah. that's, you know, but we're talking all kinds of photography. Mm-hmm. But I looked at the models that I got ready, and it was typically very beauty-minded. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the more avant-garde. And um, I attended a class uh, by one of the photographers there that talked about size acceptance because she was talking about boudoir, women's mm-hmm. boudoir shoots. And it was almost like this fire lit inside of me, and I started kind of just unraveling the layer, you know, like bringing down the layers of where I'm at with myself and Mm -hmm. my body and how I perceive it and how I present it even. And I started to think to myself, I don't think that it's solely a mission to make, to shrink myself. Because if there's one thing that I struggle with in life, it's loss because I've experienced a lot of it. And I don't digest it well. And there are often times that I don't deal with it. In fact, I lost my mom six years ago. And I'm just now starting to grieve mm-hmm. because my Band-Aid was busyness. Mm-hmm. And now that I've taken myself out of that habit, so to speak, I now have to create healthier habits. And it's not... Living a healthy lifestyle is not solely centered around what you put in your mouth or how much you move. Nope. It is a series of very important decisions and healthy habits that you're making all the way around, Mm -hmm. whether it's your relationships, the amount of things that you commit to, learning to say no and yes effectively, Mm -hmm. um, the, the amount of technology that you're taking in every day, how often are we mindlessly scrolling through 
our social media feeds. And mm-hmm. thankfully, during that that trip to St. Louis, there there were two slides that I came upon that really spoke to me in a way that created this battle cry within myself. And it, one of them was, your wounds may not be your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that was one that really stuck with me. But then the other one was, the habits that you had in survival mode will not support you to thrive in life. And so you almost have to go back and undo mm-hmm. to then piece yourself back together like the mosaic that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And then encase yourself in golden glitter, girlfriend, if you need to. <laughs> yep. Make yourself shine in a way that you haven't before. And so that's where I'm at in my life. Um, and I hope that that may inspire some of the people or all of the people that are listening to not focus solely on attaching their weight to their worth. Mm-hmm. You need to be healthy from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, if you're not healthy on the inside, like if you're not taking care of your mental health or you're not taking care of those cracks within your soul that have happened because of experiences that you've had unfortunately you then show on the outside what's happening on the inside and so for the good of the order yes those are my words it's all about a series of healthy habits and not centered around our relationship to food or our worth in our so you're such a gift to this world thank you you're a gift to me you're a gift to me thanks for Thanks for spending time with me today. You bet. That's it for our time with Nicole. My God, that girl is wise. You know, I record these interviews and then weeks later I spend time editing them. And it's always a surprise to me because weeks have gone by and I don't completely remember all of the details. But this interview in particular, as I listened to it to edit it, I was just blown away by her insight, by her ability to take the frame around things and shift them just slightly, but in a way that's so profound that it completely changes the trajectory of where the thing started in the first place. I love her insights about um, not calling herself fat, not saying I am fat, but saying I have fat, like it's an attribute, because that's really what it is, an attribute. Like I have curly hair, and I have blue eyes, and I have intellect and creativity, and I have a fat body. It is not something that defines who we are, And Nicole, and the way she moves in the world, that's all the proof I need that that is in fact true. One last thing about Nicole that always strikes me, she brings so much light into the world, and sometimes I wonder who lights up her world. I wonder who is her champion. Who puts the light inside of her to be able to position her so well to shine it around on the rest of us. Nevertheless, it must 
come from somewhere, and I, for one, am certainly grateful that she shares it with me, and now that she has shared it with all of you, maybe, I don't know, maybe she can find it from the chorus of courage that we're gathering here at the beautiful project. I suppose that time will tell. If you think you might want to hear more stories from women about their bodies, about beauty, and about belonging, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. If you loved today's episode, take a second and leave a review so that other people will be able to find us. You can find out more information about The Beautiful Project in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today and lending your voice to our chorus of courage as we create a world where women belong with substance and with strength. I'll see you all soon.